You're listening to The Peak Podcast with me, Christina Roman. We're having real, intimate conversations about the interconnectedness of life. Join us as we discuss big topics like intuition, personal mastery, and emotional wellness and why they matter for you. In this episode, I chat with James Lenhoff, an author, certified financial planner, and a fellow life coach about how he's seeking to change the conversation around money. We joked in the episode that James is an unflappable life coach ninja, but in all seriousness, he has so much wisdom to share on the importance of an improved money mindset. We dive into isolation and shame when it comes to money and how to combat it with money communities. We talk about the importance of cross-generational money mentors. We talk about the benefit of having an abundance fund and the three things that get in the way of generosity. And lastly, how to teach your kids about money in an authentic, real way. And he has a pretty hilarious quote in regards to his kids within the episode. Here are some quotables from the episode. It's great to make mistakes. We just want to be making new ones. The thing about money is that it is second, maybe only to your sex life in terms of awkward things to talk about. When it comes to money, we all make the same mistakes. The question is, when are we going to make them and how much are they going to cost? My job isn't to raise really big kids. My job is to raise grown-ass humans. Generosity is the key to living a rich life. And lastly, I thought I was protecting them. I thought that I was keeping them from having to carry this weight. What I was actually doing was preventing intimacy. Just a quick disclaimer that the ideas and opinions expressed by James Lenhoff and me, Christina, do not constitute financial advice. Listeners should seek the input of their own financial, tax, and legal professionals before acting on any recommendation from this or any other episode. Thanks for listening and enjoy the episode. James, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you here today. Oh, thanks, Christina. I'm super excited to be here. Uh, So a little bit of context on how you and I know each other. We are currently in life coaching school together. How's it going for you? Oh, it's well... It's super fun. It is. Uh, I I didn't know how much was going to be required when we jumped in, and so <laughs> once you get the giant pile of books and all the assignments, I'm going. Oh no, I'm back in college. You know, so it's <laughs> it's been a little overwhelming, but it's been super fun. Yeah, I I love school. I always rave to everyone about how I would get a master's if I thought that it was worth the trade off, the time investment, and the money investment. And so this is my <laughs> mini masters. There you go. Well, and I think I it feels it. that way for sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's hard work. Um, so a lot of people actually reach out to me to ask about life coaching certification. Mm-hmm. And I always tell them, like, if you can buy into this idea that your thoughts create your feelings, which create your actions or inactions, which create your results, then you're in. Yeah. And if you do not buy that, it's going to be a long year for you. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. If, if that foundational truth is still a question mark in your mind, it's probably not worth getting there. You know, you got to you got to agree and accept that first before it's even worth trying. Yeah, sure. yeah, absolutely. Um well, I love watching you in class. I was just actually raving before we started recording. I I call you unflappable. You just <laughs> never look phased by anything in class, <laughs> which is an amazing quality. And you mentioned that unflappability is really important in your job. And why is that? Well, yeah, unflappability is actually a trait that we screen for when we <laughs> interview people. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, when you are working with people and, and helping them manage their mind around their money, uh, they are always in chaos and fear. They're always assuming the worst. They're always bringing to you headlines of what the latest 24 hour a day news has convinced them is going to cause the next downfall of humanity. And we just listen and receive that. And we have to meet them kind of with some level of resistance against their tendency to panic. Mm -hmm. And so I've heard Everything that you could imagine, people calling and telling me, and my first response is, "It's it's probably going to be okay." You know, mm-hmm. let's let's just start with that assumption rather than the assumption that the world's going to end tomorrow, because we've been mm-hmm. having that assumption every day, and we've been wrong, you know, every day. So let's just assume we're probably wrong. Let's start mm-hmm. there and then move. And so, you know, what happens is people come to us, and the life coach piece has been so critical. Because what used to happen is I would have people call and say, this market is worrying me. You know, I'm really scared. 
uh, we need to do something about this. We need to sell to cash. We need to change everything because I heard this news headline. And I used to say, no, 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 don't do that. Let's not take that action. Let's do something else. And I would try to fight them on the action that they're trying to take. Mm-hmm. But now I spend all of my time helping them understand that the thought that they're having is what's scaring them. It's not the market. The market is neutral. It's the circumstance. We've got to get to an understanding of what's this, what's the thought that's driving all this anxiety. And then we can actually ask if that thought is true. You know, is the world going to end tomorrow? That that thought, is that a realistic thought or is, you know, should we think something else? And once we have a different thought, then all of a sudden that anxiety goes away and we don't want to take that action anymore. And I think that's been the big change for us is trying to, to change the conversation about money. Oh, I love it so much. And you're you're such a good, diligent student of the life coach school. <laughs> um, I, you know, you and I do this day in and day out. And I think it's for me, at least it's become second nature to think like this, I assume mm-hmm. for you as well. For um, sure. And so I think being able to support your clients in that way must be really powerful. Have you gotten any feedback from clients that the your style has changed over the years and you've been better able to meet them where they are? Well, you know, it's been really interesting. Um I feel like I have been doing a lot of coaching all throughout my career, mm-hmm. um, but it's it's been mostly you know still rooted in this idea that the circumstances were causing the pain, were causing the fear, were causing the the, the feeling that they were having, mm-hmm. and so it's really been since I started listening to, to Brooks' stuff, which was uh, maybe three and a half, four years ago. Whenever she started, I, I came in about, you know, 50 episodes in mm-hmm. and um, it blew my mind and I started to have these conversations. And what's happened is people don't realize that I'm effectively doing the model work with them. What's mm-hmm. so fun is that the conversation can be so natural when you're just asking, you know, when you have that thought, what do you feel? You know, mm-hmm. they, they just answer the question. So they've noticed that the conversations have been more productive for them, but I don't know if they really understand why. Mm-hmm. Kind of behind yeah. the scenes work. Yeah, I'm just kind of, you know, I'm like I'm like a life coach ninja, right? I just kind of am <laughs> doing it and they don't really understand what's happening, but they feel better <laughs> because they're having Ste- different thoughts. Yeah, stealth mode. Exactly. That's right. That's right. Uh, and just for anyone who's listening who doesn't know who Brooke is, uh, yes, that's right. Brooke Castillo of the Life Coach School. And the model is the idea that your thoughts create your feelings, which create your actions or inactions, which create your results. Mm-hmm. Um, I can say that in one breath now. Um, <laughs> and so I've definitely talked about it here on the podcast, but it'll continue to be ingrained in my work. And so actually, before we move on to money, so I have mm-hmm. so many things I want to talk about in terms of money. Yeah. I'm really curious about what you just said, which is we screen for unflappability. in the uh, people who work with you at Wealth Quest. Yes. And as a former recruiter, I'm just curious, how do you screen for that? We screen for it in multiple ways. One of the the first things that we are looking for when we um, are interviewing or even looking at resumes is we're always trying to, to see where people are investing their lives. What I have found is that when people's story is entirely centered on themselves, when they're the star and the protagonist and everything, the hero of their own story, then they tend to be way more stressed out because everything matters to them, hmm. right? But if they're giving themselves away, they're investing in, in service work, whether that's mission work or your relief work or you know volunteering in the soup kitchen or whatever, what we found is that when people are connecting to stories that are bigger than themselves, then their own story is less stressful to them. Mm. They get less wrapped up around, you know, what's happening to them and how this all me- what this all means for them. It really becomes more of a, well, that's okay. You know, they're less uh, self-centered, I guess I should say. The mm. So that's one big thing. The other thing is when we interview with them, one of my favorite questions is, you know, tell me a time when you, when you actually experience some failure. Mm-hmm. And what happens is a lot of times that story comes out as, well, there was this one time and I did this and it was a mistake, but I fixed it and here's what I did. And you can hear in their, in the way that they tell the story that they're really uncomfortable with failure. Mm. And I want people that are kind of 
well, first of all, I want them to be really comfortable to under- understand that failure is not the opposite of success. It's the process that leads mm-hmm. to success. And so if they can tell a story of a failure where they can really highlight, you know, the the learning that they had from it and not make it mean something, not make it mean that they were a failure, but just that this happened and this is what I learned and, you know, I moved on. You go, okay, you, you're welcome here. Hmm. You know, we want to be about our culture. We have a Tuesday standing meeting where all of our staff gets together in one big room in a big circle. And we just kind of walk, walk through what people need to know and where they need to, you know, share these different things that are going on. But we also try to make some space to highlight some failures because I don't want people to feel like they have to hide their failure. They need to kind of keep it a secret or we want to actually encourage people to bring them out in the open because I tell people all the time, it's great to make mistakes. We just want to be making new ones. Right. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And so if we can highlight, Hey, I did this, it was really stupid, but here's what I learned and here's what we should do differently going forward. And we can almost celebrate the fact that we learned that now and we don't have to worry about learning it again or learning a different way. Um, so that community is, is really something that only people who are comfortable with failure would be welcome into. You're killing me because you've given me 20 different directions I want to go and I just don't know what to do now. I'm paralyzed. <laughs> hey, you know, um, we could do this over and over again. I'm happy to come back. Perfect. Can we just co-host? Um, That's right. So one thing that you touched on, so I've heard of the idea of shame circles, which is basically this idea that you have this close-knit group of people and you come mm. and you share your shame. And actually, when I launched this podcast, I had this big out of shame, which I did not anticipate. It felt like all of my self-worth for my entire life was wrapped up in this podcast. And it was so powerful to be able to just talk really openly about that with people who had experienced it and could give me that confidence. So actually, I want to quote you back to you. Um, (laughs) I was listening to your podcast today and you mentioned something about having people in your community who can inject confidence where there's fear. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that so much. I just oh, got goosebumps. Thanks. Yeah. So a really good segue into money communities. Yeah. Can you talk to me about money communities? Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah. The the thing about uh, money is it is second only to maybe your sex life in terms of awkward things to talk about. Mm-hmm. Right. Money is something people just really shy away from. They don't want to uh, discuss it. And what happens is that leads to isolation. So. Mm-hmm. If someone's really struggling with a money issue, they've got you know a pile of credit card debt, they made some big mistake, they've had a bankruptcy in their history or whatever, the thing is they assume that no one else is dealing with those things and mm-hmm. they are so afraid to talk about it that it causes them to feel less and less connected to others, which actually makes all of the thoughts and all of the emotions that drove a lot of the behavior that got them in trouble in the first place, it dials all those things up to 11, mm-hmm. right? So if they felt insignificant or inadequate or stupid or whatever, all of that gets worse in isolation. It doesn't get better. And so one of the things I always try to uh, encourage people to think about is that there needs to be community. You know, we thrive in community. We were, we've been designed to be relational beings. And so when it comes to money, There needs to be conversation. There needs to be some collection of people in your life where you can have really honest and vulnerable conversations and be known. You know, when you feel known, those thoughts that create all that emotion of, you know, the negative emotion that drives a lot of these ugly actions, those start to get released and you start to actually have different thoughts that, hey, I'm not alone. And Hey, you know, it's not as bad as I thought it was because these other people have similar situations and I can learn from their situation. And so the idea of building community and having honest conversation is so contrary to our culture, uh, particularly when it comes to money. You just don't talk about it. But I also feel like even within families, I've noticed that there's not a lot of community there when it comes to money. You know, like my kids know everything about our finances and Mm -hmm. my kids are 13 about to turn 11 and nine. And so when they ask a question, I tell them, here's, you know, they they ask questions about, so like, how much money do we have? Or what is that? And how does that work? And I just tell them, and I'm not afraid of what letting them in, because the more that they are aware of this now, 
the more that they're going to be confident and, and understand how this stuff works going forward. If I wait until some day down the road when suddenly I'll feel comfortable having this conversation with them, um, that someday never comes and mm-hmm. they are left with a lot of you know, kind of emptiness in terms of perspective and wisdom that I want them to glean. And so it's, mm-hmm. it's not just kind of friends. It, it even starts just with inside your own family. I've had spouses where the husband does everything with the money. The wife has no idea. They've never been invited into the community. You know, I'm like, hey, mm-hmm. you realize you're married, right? You should have conversations <laughs> about your money, but they don't. Uh-huh. And so those are really important uh, things, I think, to build. So you mentioned on the podcast episode, which I'll link to in the show notes, about money communities. You mentioned a specific example of a husband who had a business that wasn't doing well and his relationship or lack thereof in regards to money with his wife. Can you just detail that a little bit as an example? Yeah. So it was really interesting. Uh, so the, the husband was, this was, you know, coming out of some of the ugly recession, his business was struggling and his wife had no concept of what he made and what Mm -hmm. the business did or didn't do. She was never invited into awareness of that. They, there was no shared kind of budget or what I like to call a spending plan. They had no real connection around this is how we're going to use our resources and this is how much we have in terms of resources. The wife just did what she wanted to do and the husband never really uh, let her know what was going on but also never really challenged her on her spending habits or the way that she was using their resources. He just let her do what she did. Well, then when the business struggles and he's not making as much money, because there's no communication there and she has no idea what's going on, he just starts to resent her like crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, why do you keep spending this much money? Why are you? Well, why wouldn't she? <laughs> there was no mm-hmm. awareness for her that anything had changed. And so there was just this deep brokenness in their marriage that was really rooted in the fact that he was resenting her for not knowing something that he would never share with her. And I just don't understand how, yeah. you know, I, I get it that that starts to develop over time. But at some point, there has to be some kind of breaking point where you say it, it's time for us to have some shared connection here and, and have a plan together. So once we invited her in and she understood what was going on, she was absolutely happy to change anything and everything that needed to be changed. She was totally fine with selling their house or whatever needed to happen. But she had no idea up until that moment. So it was amazing how dysfunctional uh, relationships can be. <laughs> so Yeah. No shit. No shit. Well said. <laughs> um, but I mean, I think it proves your point, which is that money is usually the symptom. And so people say money is the problem. Right. And I think you would push back on that and say, no, communication or the relationship is the problem it's, and money is now just a symptom. That's of right. It. Money is never the reason. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, people blame money for divorce all the time. It's one of the top reasons why, you know, quote unquote, top reasons why uh, couples get divorced. It's never been the reason. I mean, I've worked mm-hmm. with I can't even count how many couples have gone through divorce and blamed money. And I'm in the meet, I'm in the conversation with them going, you realize this has nothing to do with money. Money is neutral. It's just a tool. It's just this thing that exists. It in and of itself doesn't cause anything. And they start to kind of break out of this mindset and realize their money problems were rooted in relationship problems that they never got really any help for or any direction for simply because they always just blame the money. If I if we had more money, then this problem would go away, right? It's the same thing we talk about. If the circumstance would change, then everything will be better. It's not true. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think you're, it sounds like you're a relationship coach and in addition to being a money advisor then. (laughs) I find myself Um, more often than not spending time in that space because mm -hmm. so much of the tension in couples um, gets kind of, elevated and amplified when it comes to money, whatever their contempt is for each other or whatever their resentment is for each other. Um, the behavior that, that, you know, created the thoughts in their mind that that person doesn't 
care about me or that person, you know, is reckless or whatever that thought is, a lot of times it's money decisions that amplify that and make that thought even louder because their security is tied to their money, right? They're, they feel like that person is wasting their safety. You're spending all the money that made me feel like I was safe and now I feel unsafe. And uh, so those thoughts just get really, really, uh, you know, angry and ugly. Mm-hmm. And so I do a lot of work with couples to try to get them back to a, understanding a reality that money is neutral. And that mm-hmm. takes some time for sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think so. I've done some relationship coaching and it's really, really interesting to me to watch two people come together. And I think when you can create that dedicated space mm-hmm. for a couple to come and have a neutral party and to have an outside perspective on their relationship, it can be incredibly powerful. I've seen it just completely change dynamics. Um, and then you add money into the equation and I feel like it's it's even more powerful. So kudos to you for for providing that space well, for thanks. people. Yeah. Well and I think for me yeah. that's what we're trying to do. You know, I, I set mm-hmm. really small goals, right? One of my goals is to completely change the industry of financial services. You know, small goals. Um, tiny, yeah, teeny easy. tiny. <laughs> uh, but but that's really where I see the next evolution of this industry. You know, for so long uh, everyone hung their hat on we provide investment return. Well, that's commoditized. Everybody's mm-hmm. buying the same stuff. You know, so now we mm-hmm. really are, in many cases, most of the industry is lost in terms of what do we really do. And what I've found is that what we really do is provide a tremendous amount of perspective. Whenever a client faces the first time that they retire, they lose a spouse, they, you know, get divorced, they you know, send their kid to college, whatever the list is of things that they're facing for the first time, it's my 643rd time, right? I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not scared. I'm not worried about it. I've done it so many times. They've never done it before. And so that's the value of a financial planner or investment advisor. It's, it's the fact that we've seen it. You've never seen it. But we keep hanging our hat mm-hmm. on this thing, this, you know, we provide investment return. That's It's actually not really what has been about all along. We just are finally waking up to that fact. So when the client comes in and they say, we're dealing with this thing that I'm sure no one else is dealing with, we're like, oh yeah, we've seen this 150 times. You are totally normal. Congratulations. You're human. Um, Then we can help them kind of let go of some of that, whether it's self-flagellation or loathing or it's, you know, anger between the two of them. We can help them kind of soften that because they realize they're normal. And and we, there's easy ways to kind of start to move in a different direction. So, mm-hmm. I I say this to clients on a regular basis. I'm like, I mean this in the most loving, kindest way possible. You're not that special, right? This is not just <laughs> unique to you. That's right. That's exactly. <laughs> and that right. should be very comforting. <laughs> yes, that's right. It is. It really is. Yep. So this is you talked about talking about your finances with your kids. And it brought up this thought in me. I listened to this podcast a while back about this man in this small town who had a goal that everyone in the town have a living will. Mm-hmm. And so this segue is not going to make much sense for another minute. But uh, <laughs> his his point was, he's like, I've sat in enough hospital rooms with dying parents and fighting children to know that this has to be talked about. And we avoid it so much because no one wants to sit around and talk about death. Yeah. And so I think there's a lot of movements these days to do like death over dinner. So you go to a dinner party and you actually just talk about death and you talk about dying. And so it's the segue here is when you can empower your children from a young age, they're better prepared for that conversation down the road. Um, but also, I have I actually lost my dad. So he died a few years ago. And we, the, all the siblings, so I have three siblings, we spent a lot of time talking about his death in relation to money. And it was a really it was empowering experience, mm-hmm. um, surprisingly. But I think there's a lot of power to being able to talk about this from a younger age. And not leaving it till it's too late. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, the the thing when it comes to money uh, is we all make exactly the same mistakes. Just like you said, Mm -hmm. you're not that special, right? We all make the same mistakes. The question is, when are we going to make them and how much are they going to cost? And so the sooner that we get our kids connected to understanding money 
and and having their own resources to make decisions with. You know, I, I talk about in my book this idea that, you know, we as parents think that we're helping our kid when we're in the grocery store and they say, can I buy that useless piece of plastic? And we say no, because it's a waste mm -hmm. of money. It's a useless piece of plastic. Well, you know that. They don't know that yet. And so you're blocking them from learning from the best teacher, which is buyer's remorse. And so, you know, we think we're helping. It's like how they learn how to walk. They learn how to walk by falling a lot. They don't learn by someone lecturing them on gravity, right? <laughs> they just have to fall. And so I want my kids to fall over and over and over again when those falls cost $5 and $50, because if I keep protecting them or keep you know, ignoring the topic or, you know, kind of dismissing it and saying, yeah, we'll talk about it when you're older, then them, they're going to make the exact same mistakes, except now they involve a comma, right? Now it's $5,000 mm -hmm. and $50,000 mistakes instead of $50 mistakes. And so mm -hmm. I want to pull all of that learning forward. And so one of the things I tell people to do is set up the bank of mom and dad, where your kids have an account a theoretical bank account, or you can even use, there's an app out there called Greenlight, which is brilliant, where it actually pays interest. You you pay interest at a rate that's really exciting rather than like 0, mm. 0.0 at a bank. You actually can pay your own <laughs> interest. At, you know, my kids get 10% interest on their accounts. Dang, can I have but, a bank no, account with you? No, everyone asks me that. Can I open oh. an account with the bank of mom and dad? Oh. No, you can't. Uh, <laughs> that's right. Shoot. That's right. But what happens is they learn that savings is powerful. They learn that it grows. Mm -hmm. They see how compound interest works. And they also then can make decisions on spending. They have a, you know, with Greenlight, you get a debit card for each kid. Wow. And when we're at the store and they want to buy a useless piece of plastic, I'm like, go for it. It's your money. But we're having a conversation around why. What about this has captured your imagination or grabbed your heart? What are you excited about? What do you think this is going to do for you? And then when they buy it and it doesn't do that, we can talk about what did you learn there? What happened? And I'm not, I'm not angry because they didn't waste my money, right? They wasted mm -hmm. their own money. I don't care. But we, so I can have a much mm -hmm. less emotional, uh, you know, reaction. I don't have to get charged about the fact that I told you this was a waste of money and see, I was right. Cause what I'm teaching them in that space is you are stupid and you need to stay dependent on me. <laughs> right. Uh -huh. Where yeah. if I let them make mistakes, they, learn and they become incredibly intelligent and they don't become dependent on me. My job is not to raise really big kids. My job is to raise grown ass humans who can take care of themselves. Right. And so the sooner mm -hmm. I give them access to that learning, the better. But then the other conversation is I think a lot of times people are afraid of telling their kids what's going on with their own money. You know, like I have families that I talk to where the kids never knew that mom and dad, you know, had a, a big debt crunch, they had a bankruptcy or they had a, a really hard situation. They had no idea. Um, or, you know, they never really knew how much money they did have and they never understood what having wealth looked like or felt like. They just kind of were, you know, quote unquote, protected from that. And at the end of the day, it doesn't prepare them for anything. And so we think mm -hmm. we're protecting them. We're actually getting in their way of really growing and, and understanding things. And so when my kids ask questions, I tell them, and it's really funny, they'll ask questions like, you know, so are we rich? And I'll say things like, well, you know, your mom and I are doing quite well. You, however, have $350 in the bank, mom and dad, you are not rich. You know, <laughs> you know That's hilarious. we're doing okay. You got some ground to make up, so. <laughs> That's the greatest ever. I love that so much. <laughs> um, so what would you say? So first of all, have you heard of the book Mama's Bank Account? No, I haven't. Okay, so this is, I think it's a Norwegian book. We used to read it when I was little, but it's basically this premise that there is a mother and she provides for her children mm. always. And they find out, I think it's maybe when she dies, they find out that she was insanely poor all wow. along and didn't ever have money, but they always felt mm. secure. And so- I think it's kind of the opposite of what you're saying, which is to let your kids in on your financial situation. So what would you say to someone who's like, I'm in debt and I don't want my children to know because I don't want to pass that stress yeah. on to them? I think that is the I, I get the heart in that. I think it's mm -hmm. actually the opposite. You know, I, I learned I, I had a really big kind of epiphany uh, a while ago. I would come home from work. 
And my, my wife would ask me how was work and it was horrible, but I would tell her it's fine. You know, and my kids would say, Hey dad, how was work? Mm-hmm. It's fine. It was fine. It was always fine. And I mm-hmm. thought I was protecting them. I thought that I was, you know, keeping them from being, having to carry this weight, you know, what I learned is what I was actually doing was preventing intimacy, right? So Mm -hmm. by saying I'm fine, it's fine, everything's fine, they learn two things. One, dad is a superhero. He never feels pain. Uh And I do. So something's wrong with me. That's Mm -hmm. terrible. And two, they can't come in and soothe my pain and love me well because I never let them know that I'm feeling it. And so that's mm-hmm. obviously more relational stuff, but I think it applies to the same issue with debt. If if we don't express and and welcome our the ones who are closest to us who can love us the best and soothe our pain the best into our pain. If we don't say please come in here with me and help I just need you to understand where I'm at and what's going on, then they can meet us there and they can do amazing things for us. You know, and so I think we discount our kids and say they can't help. They really can, even if it's just simply not being so pressure oriented about, I want this thing, right? Buy me these new sneakers Mm -hmm. or get me this new thing. And they demand and they argue because they don't know that you're eyeball deep in debt. So, of course, they're Mm going to keep doing it. It's the same thing with the husband that's mad at his wife for spending money that she doesn't know they don't have, (laughs) you know, um, Right. So welcoming mm-hmm. them in allows them to to have much more perspective. It also, I think we're afraid of admitting our mistakes or letting our kids see that we've done things that didn't work out. Um, but I've seen the result of that on the other end when the, you know, mom and dad are 80 something and the kids are like, they feel, they feel like failures. They feel stupid because mom and dad never screwed up. And I have all these things I'm doing and they know about it. Right. And the thing is, mm-hmm. I know I've been working with these with these families. I know their history. I've talked to them for so long. I'm like, oh, yeah, no, they've screwed up like 12 times. I can count all these things that they've done, <laughs> but they're not letting them in on that. And so the kid makes a judgment about themselves and they feel stupid mm-hmm. and like a failure. And so it's just so much more productive to be vulnerable and authentic and allow people to come in. We think they're going to carry our stress and that we're putting undue burden on them. What actually happens is they share some of the load in a way that's actually healthy and soothes some of our pain. And it doesn't hurt them. I've never seen it hurt them. I've only seen it draw people closer Mm -hmm. to each other. And build resilience, I imagine. Sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And hope. Yeah. Right. I mean, we're when we're in it together. Well, you know, we've, we've, yes, I understand that my decision brought us into this situation, but you love me and you want this to get better and we're going to fix it mm-hmm. together. Man, that's the opposite of isolation, right? So it gives you this sense. It's the community that we talked about. It's what solves a lot of that, that pain of being alone. Yeah. I was talking to somebody the other day and he told me that the first time he ever mentioned problems with his wife was when he told his friends that they were getting separated. And mm, I was wow. so stunned by that. And so we we did talk a lot about male and female dynamics and mm-hmm. male and female generalizations and stereotypes, but I think that sometimes they're founded. Um, sure. But I think it was just so fascinating to me that I, I just thought about that and I was like, had he shared, not to say that it wouldn't have ended in divorce, but he may have gotten some really, really valuable insight and support. And I think maybe just kind of a, a network rallying around him and his relationship yeah. that he didn't let people into and he wasn't able to get that. That's exactly right. Well, and, you know, I, I'll i never forget I had a day I came home. My oldest son, this was several years ago, came home from school and something had happened at school that was really just hard. And he you know, was having some really hard thoughts that were causing a lot of pain. He was, and he started to cry as he was telling me the story and kind of midway through, he kind of sucks it in. He's, you know, it's, it's fine. I'm good. I'm fine. And I'm like, Whoa, what are you doing? You can cry. Hmm. Absolutely. Please feel free. And I thought in that moment, I said, Oh, you've never seen me do that. 
you've never, you don't know that it's okay because I've not shown you mm-hmm. that it's okay. You know, and so, so much of what we, you know, are, are kind of passing on to our kids is really rooted in what we give them access to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so for this particular person you were talking about to, to not welcome other people in to suddenly, you know, all of a sudden we go from everything's fine to we're getting a divorce. <laughs> it's right. like, you know, there's just not a, a space for real relationship there. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I've tried to intentionally let my family into my pain mm-hmm. because uh, it's better for me. It's also better for them. So I've said this actually on another podcast, but it brings up this idea that when you attach judgment to receiving help, you are subconsciously attaching judgment to giving help. Mm -hmm. And I think that that ties to support as well. The emotional support is if you have resistance to receiving emotional support from people, I think subconsciously they're going to have the same resistance towards sharing with you. Um, And I think that's another blocker to intimacy like you mentioned. Absolutely. There's one more piece of the money community, which I absolutely love that you touched on, which is the value of an intergenerational mentor. Hmm, And the reason that I find that so, I think that was my favorite piece, honestly, (laughs) the whole money community talk, which again is (laughs) advisor, significant other, friends, and kids, Mm -hmm. is I, so I've been actually, I've been going to a Quaker meeting, so I've think I've talked about that here on the podcast, but the Quaker meetings are just fascinating. So I always say, if you have a stereotype about Quakers, it's probably wrong. (laughs) They're very normal. (laughs) Um, It's basically a prolonged meditation. But I, one thing that I noticed by being in that community was how powerful it was to be in such an intergenerational setting. Hmm. And I realized that I don't have that very often in my life. And then I, I also tie this into when I was a recruiter, people would always tell me that they were looking for a young workplace, which I feel like is basically just code for like, I want to drink beer and play ping pong. Um, (laughs) And I always used to push back and I would say, you know, there's a lot of value to intergenerational workplaces. You learn a lot when you're not around only other 22 year olds. Not that they're bad. Yeah, Um, But so I just I just love the idea of intergenerational. So can you just touch briefly on why you think that's so important? Oh yeah, uh, I'll try to touch briefly on it because I think it's <laughs> or touch critical. touch longly, yeah, yeah, however long it needs to be. So <laughs> yeah. here's the deal. So um, you know, on this on the side, I do men's ministry work, mm-hmm. and one of the things I did uh, a couple years ago was I had I had this men's retreat where I, we had uh, hundred plus men from all these different generations. We had some people from the greatest generation, boomers, Xers, and millennials, all represented mm-hmm. in this room. And I had them all write down a single word about each generation and drop Mm -hmm. it in a box anonymously. Okay. And then I had a a representative from each of those generations get up and read the words that were written about their generation. Uh And so I set the tone first. And, you know, in in scripture, it says in Psalm 145, and I'm not going to quote it exactly right because I'm just doing it off the top of my head, but it basically says one generation will speak to the other about your greatness and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They will do this. I will do that. They will tell me about this. I will I will learn that. Right. And it doesn't say the older generation will pass down. It says one to the other back and forth. Right. Mm -hmm. This cross generational relationship is the design of how we're supposed to exist. And in my belief, well, so we get up, I set that tone and then I have them read this and the baby boomers are reading words like, you know, they're selfish, they're uh, achievement oriented, they're greedy. And the the millennial is reading words like, you know, uh, lazy and entitled and worthless. And and the millennial even started crying as he was reading these words, because they were just vicious. And Mm -hmm. I stood up in front of this crowd after they had read these words, and all of these people were just devastated by the words that were written about every generation. And I said, if this is what we think about each other, then we will never be in cross-generational relationship. Mm -hmm. And, And the enemy wins, right? The goal here is that we glean wisdom from each other. We, we have shared life experiences. And it is so incredibly important 
for us to have someone who's 15 or 20 years ahead of us that can say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that season. It was a season. It didn't last forever. But here's what I did, and here's the mistakes I made, and here's the stuff that I did well. And you can, first of all, know that you're not the only one that did this. Secondly, you can know that it's temporary. Like this didn't kill this person. It didn't ruin them. And you can also then maybe understand what steps you should be taking. If you're talking to only your peers and you say, hey, I'm, I'm eyeball deep in credit card debt. And they go, yeah, me too. What do we do about that? I don't know, because I'm eyeball deep in credit card debt too. Like we can't help each other, right? We need that person who's been there before that can give us some direction and some understanding and also some confidence that you can get out of this. It's incredibly valuable. But the other thing is what I tell everybody is when you go to a, a, a cross-generational relationship, you're, you're reaching out to an older person or someone is reaching out to you. One of the things I highly recommend is that you go with a specific request. So, mm-hmm. you know, when everybody's, whenever anybody calls me, which I get calls from time to time where they say, hey, I would just love to pick your brain. That is the worst <laughs> phrase ever. I say no. I don't know uh-huh. what that means. Uh-huh. And I feel like, you know, I don't want you in my skull. So no, just whatever. But if they come to me and they say, hey, I really am interested in knowing how to build the business that you've built, or I really want to learn from you about how to put this particular technology in place or how to coach people this way, or whatever it is. I'm like, oh yeah, I can tell you about that all day long, right? Mm-hmm. But so if we go to a, to someone with a general, hey, can you mentor me? They're going to say, no, that sounds really intimidating. And I don't know if I have anything to offer. But if you go with a specific mm-hmm. question, hey, I've noticed that you do this well, and I want to do that well. Can you teach me how to do that well? They'll say yes every time. But we need to recognize how important it is. I've had men in my life from high school on that have been 15 or 20 years ahead of me, different men, different seasons all throughout my life. And I've gone intentionally to them and said, I want to learn this from you. And then they teach me. It's fantastic. It's it's changed my life. My mind is just going crazy with all these different people who are 15, 20 years older than me and all of the different impact that they've had on my life. And I think I've been really, really lucky. I think as a child, my mom did a lot to boost our confidence around adults. And so I think that was really beneficial as I was never nervous to talk to people of different abilities or different ages or different races. And so I think that that's carried over into adult mm-hmm. life for me. And I think that's absolutely something I would love to pass on to kids one day is that comfort level with different generations. And just see, again, to reiterate what you've said is seeing the value of having different experiences and understanding yeah. You know, life was life was different at one point for different people and understanding that outside of the scope of our That's current right. reality. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thank yeah. you for sharing that. Um, I do want to talk about generosity. Yeah. So I know it's a really big pillar of your money yeah. philosophy. So can you talk to me about generosity and why it's so damn important? <laughs> Gener- yeah, generosity <laughs> is the key to living a rich life. Uh-huh. It is what hinges... Uh, what everything hinges on is this idea of having a story that is bigger than your own. We have been designed to lift the burdens of others. It is what makes us human. It's what makes us feel the most human. You know, when you when you think about like the story of Ebenezer Scrooge, everybody loves that story uh, because we, even though it's a novel, it still feels so true. And what we see in that is a guy who was telling himself a story that sounded like I did all this myself. This was all because I gritted it out and I built this wealth and no one helped me. And so dag on it, I'm not going to help anybody else. He was this miserly old man. And then along comes the ghost of Christmas past that actually shows him the real story. Says, hey, man, you were never alone. There were all these people throughout your life that helped you in ways that made all the difference that you had no control over. You're actually incredibly fortunate. And overnight, he transforms into this benevolent, warm, joyful man who's literally throwing money at people dancing in the streets, right? And we go, that's Hmm. real because it's true. It is real. What I've discovered, you know, I've been doing this for 20, almost 20 years now. 
And as I've worked with people, there there's a hard wiring in all of us to be generous. This nudge to kind of help this other person or lift that burden or relieve that pain is just part of our DNA. But there's these circuit breakers that cut off that signal. And I like, you know, this, there's three of them that I've identified. One is the fortunate versus self-made. That's the Ebenezer Scrooge story, right? The one that says, I did all this myself. No mm -hmm. one helped me, so I'm not going to help somebody else. Uh, but when you recognize that, you know, I could have been born in Haiti. I could have been born during the plague. I could have been born in a circumstance that was way different than the one I was born into. And I had no control over that. It had nothing to do with that mm -hmm. decision, right? You go, okay, maybe it wasn't all me. <laughs> maybe a lot of this is just because mm -hmm. I'm fortunate. And you flip that circuit breaker back on. The other two, one is uh, gratitude uh, versus entitlement. So the entitlement mindset says, I got screwed somehow. I'm still owed something. And I'm not going to give anybody else anything until I get what I deserve. Where gratitude is way more uh -huh. connected to just how amazing life is and how thankful we can be for what we do have. And it allows us to stay connected to, I have this this incredible opportunity I've been given and I'm grateful for it. And so I can share with other people. I don't have to wait for mine to come. Right. And then the last one is this abundance scarcity mm -hmm. mindset. Scarcity says everything is you know, limited. We're all fighting over really scarce resources. We all have to scrap and, and fight to hoard as much as we can to protect ourselves. And so I can't give you anything because I'm afraid that I don't have enough. And abundance mindset says, everything multiplies. The pie gets bigger. Other people's fail, uh, success does not mean my failure, right? I, I can connect to this idea mm -hmm. that there's more than enough to go around. And that allows me to then stay connected to generosity. So it doesn't take all three. Any one of those circuit breakers could be flipped. And when one of them is flipped, it cuts the signal. So when you're in the circumstance where this person is in front of you that is in pain or that needs help, you tell yourself that story, whatever one of those three cuts you off, and then you don't give, you don't connect to that person. So one of the tools that I advise people to have that really helps break them open is this idea of an abundance fund. You know, how do we create this mechanism to keep those circuit breakers flipped on? The answer is put some money aside that is specifically for the purpose of generosity. You know, everybody has an emergency fund. And I'm not telling you not to. Every financial planner worth his salt would say, have an emergency fund. But that's answering the question, what if things go wrong? The answer to the question, what if things go well, generally we say, well, I'll just spend that extra money on myself, right? Uh, but if we actually mm -hmm. answer it a different way, well, if things go well, if they go better than I expected, I'm going to set that aside and have it ready. And that way I've proven to myself that I'm fortunate. I've proven that I can be, should be grateful. And I've also proven that I have an abundance that's sitting right there waiting for me. And then when you feel that nudge, whether it's big or small, you act because you already have the money set aside. So in my family, we've had abundance fund for a while. And, you know, my wife will be at lunch with someone and having a, you know, a conversation with them and they just have this horrible situation. And my wife will come home and say, hey, I had this conversation. This person's in a bad situation. I wrote this check and made it go away. And I'm like, high five. That's fantastic. We don't have to argue wow. or talk about, well, where's it going to come from? Hmm. How are we going to afford that? What do we, it's already there. It's ready to go, you know? And so we can just act in the moment, no hesitation. And my kids are the same way. You know, they come home, they know that this money is for all of us. It's not just me and Amy's, it's theirs too. And so their eyes are open and their ears are listening for opportunities hmm. to impact people and help because the money is there. And they come home and they say, Hey, this kid, this, certain thing happened. Can we help that family? Yeah, you bet. That's what it's, what's there for. So it opens us up to really engaging in generosity without it hurting. Right. Because I think that we think generosity mm -hmm. is something that will happen eventually. Like when I get to a place where I'm confident that I'm going to have plenty of money and I'm never going to run out, never, then I'll give. Well, if you haven't built the discipline in, it never happens. So it reminds me of some research that I read about time. And they say that people who give mm, freely of yeah. their time feel like they have more time. 
And I think that's the same point is if you wait until you're not busy and until you have free time to give, Mm -hmm. you're probably never going to do it. So I really like that idea that by building it into the process, then you have it. That's right. That's right. Bucketized. Um, I, I have a question for you. So if I think about different people that I would potentially give money to from an abundance fund. Um, I sometimes resist that because I'm afraid that then maybe they'll do something with the money that I don't approve of, or they might get themselves back into a financially precarious place. And I worry that that would cause tension on our relationship. So now I'm just using you as my coach. What would you tell me? (laughs) (laughs) The podcast is really just free coaching for me. Let's be honest. (laughs) That's right. There you go. That's great. That's awesome. Well, I think I think the thing that I tell people, because that is a very common question, I don't want to create dependency. Yep. You know, I don't want people to think that this is unlimited. They can just keep coming mm-hmm. back. Um, I don't want them to, you know, I, I even have had someone say something like, well, I don't want to get in the way of the learning mm-hmm. that they are supposed to go through in this pain. Yep. You know, and my response to that is, Okay, this is not really a, a situation where they're coming and asking you for money. Mm-hmm. Like if you feel pulled to give in that scenario, that's fine. But what I'm more concerned about are the opportunities where you see something or hear something and immediately your heart says, help that person. Mm-hmm. Before you start telling yourself all the reasons why you shouldn't, by having those resources available, you can just act. And when you act, what I tell everybody is no. That it is not going to go perfectly well. Mm. Know that you are giving this money and it could be completely wasted. It could go wrong. It could create more problems. It could, all these things are available. It's absolutely possible that that happens. But that is completely irrelevant to you listening to your heart in that moment. It really is. Now, people say, well, but that seems really irresponsible. Well, the money's already sitting there anyway. Mm-hmm. Right. This isn't money that you're taking from something else or you're set. This is money that is truly already set aside for this purpose. And so in the moment you can act. And then what what's happened with us, we have certainly had circumstances where, you know, we we did something that was kind of a big opportunity to help. And it created a, hey, do you still have or could you? And we say, no, that was it. Mm hmm. We just, that was the moment where we felt nudged and we're done. And it's not like they say you're an evil person, mm-hmm. right? Because we helped them in the first stage, right? Um, but it it is it is a little awkward in that moment. There's other situations where uh, we've given the money and had the intention of them using it for this and they use it for something else. But if you give money, you are truly giving them authority. You know, I'm going to give you this because I feel compelled to do so. You, This is yours now. It's not mine anymore. Mm-hmm. I've given it to you. If you give it to them with strings attached and say, I'll only give this if you do this, this, and this with it, then you're really not giving it to them. You're manipulating them into, yeah. bel- into agreeing with your direction or doing your set of you know, approved behavior. That's not generosity. That's control, right? So, so what I what we've done is over the years we've had those circumstances, and I tell people all the time they will happen. They won't happen every time. Mm-hmm. And the times where they don't happen, the times where it's just beautiful, are so worth it that I don't care if it happens because there's so many opportunities where we have acted that we wouldn't have if we didn't have the abundance fund. Right. And what has come out of it is nothing short of miraculous. And you Mm go, worth it. Worth the other weird, awkward ones. Totally Mm -hmm. worth it. (laughs) So it's fascinating to me because when I ask the question, you know, what if all these things happen? Mm And as soon as I said it, I thought about the fact that one of my biggest lessons from the life coach school and Brooke Castillo have been has been that you can feel any emotion. And once right. you can feel any emotion, you don't live in fear anymore of all these potential negative emotions. And so it was interesting when I asked the question, I was like, wait, 
those are all what ifs. Those are all potential negative emotions that I might feel in the future. And if I'm not scared, let's say I'm scared of feeling resentment. If I just accept that I might feel resentment, but I can cross that bridge when I get there and I can deal with that emotion if it comes up for me, it opens up a world of possibility. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, we think that if someone does this, then that action will make me feel, mm -hmm. you know, fill in the blank. But right. you can have a totally different thought and have a totally different feeling in the same circumstance. And the thought that I have once I give money to someone is uh, this is yours now. And I don't I don't have any control. I don't have any say. I, I am fully releasing all of the authority of this money to you because I have given it to you. That's what that means. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then whatever happens after that, they own. I don't. Right. And so I feel like one of the things that uh, prevents us from generosity is simply that we don't want to feel like it went wrong. Right. But if we can get out of that mindset to say, I'm doing what I feel compelled to do in the moment and I'm not hesitating, the th we can hold on to what that meant for us. Right. Mm -hmm. I was obedient to my heart. And that's mm -hmm. all that mattered. That's a huge win. I'll take it, you know. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, everything on this podcast always comes back to heart and intuition mm. and values and, and living in alignment with those values. That's awesome. um, so I love that you've you've touched on that as mm. well. I'm really curious, actually, when you think that thought, this is yours now, mm. what's the feeling that that sparks in you? Um, it it sparks a delight, actually, mm. um, that I've been given this incredible opportunity to make an impact whatever and and the thing is whatever happens after that is not mine to own it's theirs even if it works out great that's mm -hmm. not mine like i'm not reveling in the glory of the circumstance that that person is now in and saying i did that all uh -huh. i'm doing is saying i played my part i i, yeah. I obeyed in the moment and i gave what was what I felt like I was instructed to give. And that's all I need, right? I just celebrate mm -hmm. that I, I did what, you know, in my case, what I feel like the Lord was asking me to do, right? I mm -hmm. felt like, yeah, that was right. Everything else after that is, is not mine. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think one of the things that uh, a lot of times people think of the abundance fund in terms of charity you know, charity is, you know, your tithe or your charitable giving or whatever your normal discipline would be. That's separate in my mind. This is truly about okay. money that it could certainly go to a cause if there's a particular thing that you're trying to do, a particular burden for that organization that you're trying to lift. But where I would mm -hmm. encourage people to start is with human on human, life on life impact. And it doesn't have to be people that you know. Like there have been times where I've been at the gas station and the car that pulls up on the other side of the gas pump is this, you know, single mom with kids screaming in the background and everything looks hard. And I'm just like, oh, okay. And I just walk around and swipe my card and buy her a tank of gas. And, you know, 50 yeah. bucks, who cares? But some way to just go, I just want to help you. And so I'm going to do this. And that's it. I never know her. I never, I, you know, might even not even meet her. I might just say, hey, stay in your car, swipe, I'll pump the gas for you. Um, mm -hmm. But in that moment, I'm connecting this direct burden lifting. When we give to this theoretical charity, we give to, you know, the Red Cross or you give to, you know, some mission, it's, it's still out there. It's not direct. It doesn't feel like we actually did it ourselves. And so, mm -hmm. um, and it's also about a tax deduction in a lot of ways, um, which is somewhat selfish still, you know, this is just truly human to human. I'm going to take this pain away for a second. It may come back mm -hmm. and that's okay, but I'm at least going to relieve it for a little bit. I love that you mentioned delight mm. and we've actually talked about delight before <laughs> in yeah, your world. Right. Um, but the, the emotion that I feel on a pretty consistent basis, I, I call it pleasantly surprised. Mm. And it's that feeling of when things 
when pleasant surprises happen to me and I feel pleasantly surprised, but also when I have that opportunity to help other people and and give pleasant surprises. Yeah. Um, so it actually reminds me when I was younger, when we used to go through tolls, we would always pay for the person behind mm-hmm. us. And it's not necessarily a burden relief. It might be someone who didn't need it, but it's always a pleasant surprise, I feel like, for the for the recipient of that or paying for the person's coffee behind you. Such a small touch, but just one of those really kind of fun ways to give delight and surprise and delight. That's right. I mean, I think we think that the only way this works is if we're lifting something that's massive. You know, we're paying right. off a huge debt or we're, you know, saving them from some calamity. I, you know, I think a lot of times that traps us into thinking I can't do anything until I've saved, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars in the abundance fund. I'm kind of like, I'm right. going to get started. Five buck coffee. Go mm-hmm. for it. You know, do yeah. the things that you feel compelled to do, whatever they are and however small they are, just do them. You just got to put yourself in a mm-hmm. position where you don't hesitate. Yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's an awesome call mm-hmm. to action. Go relieve someone's burden, big or small That's right. today. That's right. Or, <laughs> or tomorrow. tomorrow. Or fine. both. Both would be good too. <laughs> or <Yeah>. both. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, so as we come up on the end here, I want to give you a chance to give us any final thoughts. Obviously, I have so many more things that I could chat with you about in terms mm. of money, um, but I love all of your work and I'll for sure link to it in the show notes. But is there anything else that we haven't talked about today that you're like, you know what? Listeners of the Peak Podcast should really know this thing. <laughs> oh man, um, no yeah, pressure. I mean, wrap it up in, in you know a tight bow. I think uh, you know my my biggest thing that I feel like people need to understand is that money is not mathematical, and that sounds really counterintuitive and wrong, actually. But my experience is that's true. Uh, the math is the easy part of money. You know, it's actually pretty straightforward. It's not that hard. If it were just math, it'd be easy. But it's hard because it's emotional and it's relational and it's experiential and it touches so much of our humanness. And that's why money gets so complicated and people don't talk about that. They're talking about Mm -hmm. the math. They're talking about taxes and they're talking about formulas and things that don't connect to the actual problem. And so I'm literally on a mission to change the conversation about money and to get us talking about the stuff that's hard because it's not enough to just set out rules and say, always, always, always do this and never, never do that because life isn't linear. It doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. We need to actually have the emotional intelligence and the, the personal wisdom to navigate these decisions in a way that actually connects to our own heart and our own emotion and what we really want for our family, rather than just listening to someone else's rules. That's one of the issues I have with a lot of the gurus that are out there today is that they talk to people as if they're children. You know, don't ever do this Mm -hmm. and always do this and follow my rules. And I just get repulsed by that. I mean, these are grown ass humans who have really deep emotional connections to other humans and we're treating them like they don't. And so I just want us to be authentic about the fact that it's the, it's the other things that are hard and we got to talk about that stuff. So, you know, if you don't have conversations about the hard part of money, find community around that, find a different advisor that can talk to you about that, find spaces where you can talk about the hard part because it will change everything. Uh, And then the math gets easy. It gets even easier. When you're connected to your heart, the math is like, yeah, whatever, it's fine, it's easy, just do that. You know, you don't even have to think about it, Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. Thank you so much. I I have loved this conversation and I am going to link to your book in the show notes, but mm-hmm. do you have Great. any other books, whether they're finance related or not, that you would recommend to listeners? Oh, man. Uh, oh, gosh. Lots of books. Um, trying to think of ones <laughs> that I've read recently. I would say anything from Brene Brown. Uh, yeah. Just call. all of them. <laughs> so mm-hmm. yep. she's fantastic. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I also uh, like... Uh, Simon Sinek's uh, Get to the Why or 
I forget, is that the start, start with, with why? Go start with why. Uh-huh. Um, mm-hmm. Just helping to connect to the passion and what it is that you're really excited about and what you want to do. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, I'm, I'm just a junkie for um, emotional maturity books. So anything that's in mm-hmm. that vein is so helpful. And it's ironic how much it helps with money. Um, mm-hmm. I guess it's not ironic. It's clear why it helps with money, but we don't think of it that way. We think we need to read money books in order to be more mature when it comes to money. We actually need to read emotional maturity books. <laughs> That's way more mm-hmm. helpful. So, yeah. yeah. And then, and then they, I also they... uh, would love for people to connect to the podcast. You know, we have a podcast called uh, the rich life podcast. That's named after the book. Mm-hmm. And that is a lot of these same conversations around how do we talk about money differently? How do we engage in the hard part? how we change the conversation. And so, you know, getting more engaged in talking with other people about the topics that we're talking about helps to build the community, be the brave one, right. That's, that's willing to actually mm-hmm. say, Hey, I want to talk about this. I know it's awkward, but let's do it. You know? So. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll, I'll link to all awesome. of that and love the podcast. Um, so if you want to hear James and all his unstoppability, <laughs> just tune into <laughs> that great. podcast. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining today. It has been oh, awesome talking been with you and I will see you in class. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And yeah, anytime that we can keep talking about more of this stuff, I'm happy to come back whenever you want me to. So yes, a hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Thank you. <laughs> all right. Thank you for listening to the peak podcast. Your support helps this podcast grow. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and then head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It is so much appreciated, and I will see you on the next episode.